Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. I just want to take a second here as we start. I want to give you students a task today uh, and tomorrow morning. Please do me the favor of thanking. I mean, and you got to learn to do this right. I want you to go up to your adult at some point uh, this weekend, whoever drug you here, whoever got you here, and, and say thank you for bringing me. I don't think you understand. I, I think sometimes your generation has this attitude of like, everybody just will give me everything. And I hate to say it, but like um, the word that people use to describe millennials, and I don't think it's fair, so let's prove them wrong, is entitled, Right? You, 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 aren't, you aren't those people. Like, you guys are gracious, loving, wonderful people. So go to those adults and say to them, hey, you know what? Thank you for giving up a weekend, sleeping on a mattress that's like, six, you know, four inches thick. You don't understand as a teenager because it's like not a big deal to you. But when you're old and busted, like your leader is, they have hip pain right now. They got like this arthritic toe that still bothers them. Sometimes it acts up. Like they're, they got gout. They got all kinds of issues because they're ancient and old and busted, and um, they're just cr- their joints are creaking. They bent over the other day. It still hurts, and it's just thank them for being here and loving you so well that they would give up a weekend to take you to a place like this, and um, I just think it's delightful. My hope for you this weekend is that you would encounter God. I love the Liberty Worship Collective. They're trying to help facilitate that also. Everybody here at the ranch, just trust. People have been praying for you, for your story, um, I, I've, been, I've been coming to the River Valley Ranch here for like 13 years, and they pray for you here. Like, you, you matter to them. This is not just a production that they put on. Like, they actually, they care about every individual student that ever shows up and their story and where they are. And so we hope to meet you where you are and guide you closer to Jesus. I told you we were going to work through some of the Gospel of John. It's so artistic. It's so beautiful. Here's what you need to know about John. Um, if Jesus had a best friend... It was John. Uh, at least that's what John thought. Um, I mean, in, in John's gospel, he doesn't even name himself. This is what, what he says about himself is, um, I'm Jesus' favorite. Like, any chance he can. He's like, he's like uh, I'm, I'm Jesus' favorite. And, I, you know, I don't even think that that is like a boast or a claim of like superiority over the other disciples, which I do think John in his younger years struggled with pride. He was a little arrogant. But what I actually think is like he didn't want to be known even by his name. And it, when we get John's gospel, it is the recollections of the last living eyewitness of the Jesus event. He views himself as like the grandfather of the Jesus movement. He's an old man. They've tried to execute him. And he's the last living eyewitness of, of the Jesus event. And he's, he writes this gospel with this idea of like, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. And in doing so, he identifies himself not as, as John, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, all these things he could have done. At this point, he's kind of a legend. He's kind of famous. He says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. I, I want to reflect that core identity into the world. And so he paints these artistic portraits of who Jesus is. And he does it in such a beautiful way. And I, I really love this. 
And so I'm in the second chapter of John, and this is the story that John chose. The other thing John says about his gospel is this. At the end of the book, he says, I handpicked the stories that I was going to tell you from vast volumes of experience with Jesus. I lived among him. We, I mean, we, we worked and lived alongside each other. I had a million stories. I, there's not enough room in all the world for the books I could write about my experience with Jesus, but I picked some stories to tell you specifically, to paint a picture for you of what my friend Jesus was like. So this is, he's doing this on purpose. John's choosing these stories to paint you a picture of, of his friend. And this should puzzle your mind that he begins the ministry of Jesus here in this way. It should, this is, it's saying something about the very nature of Jesus. And uh, you gotta get this, and I'm really fighting this little cord. It's like trying to strangle me back here, and I'm gonna just pull it up here. There we go. How's that? All right, are we good? You guys are laughing at me, but you don't have a noodle tickling your bald head. Okay? It's, when you don't have any hair, the presence of anything that feels like hair near your head is really uh, concerning. It's, just, it's very unnerving. All right, here we go. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Now, just time out real quick. This is really close to the Galilean countryside where Jesus grew up. Okay, we're like maybe 15 miles away from his hometown. We're close. I mean, this is like in the region. He's in the region where he grew up. It's probably why he's invited to this wedding. He knows this family and his mother's there with him. And so this might even be like a, like, like a family friend or a distant relative. And the other thing I want you to understand is in the ancient world, weddings were entirely different than they are now. The ancient world was very focused on the community response at such a rite of passage as this. So we get together, we have a, a good party. Anyone, any, do we have any Italians in the house? Okay, now, you, you get it a little because there is no wedding like an Italian wedding. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, my family, my Italian family, when uh, I have a German side of my family and an Italian side, the German side eats terrible and they're staunch and they're terrible. That's why I have this bad look on my face when I'm at a rest. To the Germans. Very serious. My dad is the nicest guy you would never know because he looks terrifying. Anyway, my Italian side are like warm and gregarious and they talk and they tell big stories. And when anyone is born, what they do is they put a cask of wine in the family wine cellar. They own a bunch of restaurants and, and banquet halls. And when, when, when a child is into the, born into the family, they put their wine cask in the cellar and it stays in the cellar until they get married. And when they get married, they bring this barrel of wine up from the wine cellar with a mallet and they uncask the thing and the wine flows. Italian weddings last like a full day. There's multiple meals involved. I mean, you have like, there's another meal that happens at like two in the morning because it's just, they just, it's like nonstop. It's like this revelry. It just goes on forever and ever. There's costume changes. I didn't, you know, my wife came into the family. She's Scandinavian. She doesn't really understand that. You can't wear the same outfit to the ceremony that you wear to the reception in an Italian wedding. That's just, you don't do that. Like, so she's like, wait, I have to change? And I'm like, baby, that's a good dress for the ceremony. She's like, well, I need another dress? I'm like, yeah, for the party. And she's like, I'm not prepared for this, honey. My people party not. You know, she's from this Scandinavian Pentecostal holiness background. Um, there's a lot of things they not. Anyway, anyway, I'm kidding. <clears throat> okay, 
in the ancient world, these weddings go on for three or four days sometimes. It's a reason to get everybody together. They have a feast. You know, and part of the reason is they're killing. If it's a big crowd, they got to kill a cow. There's no leftovers. It's not like, well, we'll just put it in the fridge when we're done. Whatever you didn't eat. That would be extravagantly wasteful. So what, they, they slaughter an animal according to the size of the guest list, and you stay till it's gone. You got to eat the thing. I mean, you couldn't waste it. I mean, this is like our months and months of, of, of you know, it's a, a year's wages have gone into this. It's a big deal. So there's days of partying involved in this. If that makes you uncomfortable, it's in the Bible. I didn't write it. Okay, here we go. They're at this wedding. Jesus' mother was there. Very important detail. And we'll talk about her in a second. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. This is very early in the story. Jesus has not yet performed miracles. He has not yet done a lot of public teaching. He has not yet really inaugurated his ministry. And John takes this moment to define for us what it looks like that the word has become flesh and made its dwelling among us? What does it look like that Jesus has entered the human story? What does it look like that here comes hope into the mess of our lives? It's here. They're sitting down, everybody's there. Jesus has his disciples and there's, his mother's there. And this is, this is this little detail. When the wine was gone, so just think about this for a second. People have come from neighboring communities. Every house in this little town in the Galilean countryside is full. Everybody's got you know, people on the couch and people over here, people over there, and they're at this multiple day feast. And now all of a sudden the wine is gone. They can't just run to the store and get more. This is a big problem. This is about to be kind of an embarrassing situation for the hosts, which are the bride and groom. You get these, these, these young people they're young. They're very young. I mean, in, in the ancient world, she's maybe 15 years old. This is a big deal. And the wine's gone. And, and when the wine stops flowing, I don't know if you can get this, but it means the party's over. I mean, this is a problem. And this is, it's not supposed to be over right now, but, but it's over. And here's Mary, and she's watching. And Mary has a very unique perspective about what it would look like to be a young woman growing up in the Galilean countryside with a scandal hovering around her story and her name. You forget that about Mary. See, we have painted Mary into this kind of, you know, venerated icon, and she's been elevated to almost God status, I think. And, you know, we think of Mary as this, like, you know, Anglo-Saxon woman with a halo. She's probably 55 years old, and she always has a scowl on her face, she's holding a baby, and she's in stained glass windows everywhere. But in truth, what Mary was at the beginning of the biblical story was an unwed teenage mother. And scandal surrounded her everywhere she went. People thought at worst she was an adulteress. At best, she had been assaulted by a Roman soldier. She lived under that cloud. She can't exactly walk around and say to everybody, this is God's baby, okay? Think about it for a second. This is un unreal that she grew up under this. Now, from Mary's perspective, she knew 
that extraordinary had entered the ordinary. She knew that God had drawn near. She knew that something remarkable was about to happen. And she was just waiting every single moment for Jesus to do his thing. But she lives every day in the tension between what had already come into the world and what was yet to be realized. What is it like for Mary as she endures sideways glances? What was it like for Mary as people looked down on her? Because she made this heroic choice to step towards her destiny in a way where she said goodbye to normal and every day, where she said goodbye to ordinary. What if she just wanted to be normal? I was in youth ministry for a long time, and I, I, I met very few teenagers that wanted to be that kid. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there is sometimes you want to stand out, but you want to stand out for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Nobody wants to be the one who's isolated or excluded, who's publicly embarrassed. Nobody wants to be the one whose moment is too big for them. You know, and this is, this is a really, really scary thing. And, and this is the kind of thing where adults react because sometimes those moments get so big. And, and in, the, in the world we live in now, listen carefully, your momentary lapse of judgment can become an eternal, living, breathing reality on the internet. It can go viral. And some of you know stories like that. Listen, everybody does something dumb when they're a teenager. Everybody, every single adult you've ever met has that one thing they did that they're really glad nobody recorded. It wasn't on video and it didn't get on YouTube and it didn't become viral. You didn't become a sensation and it, it did not last you. But your, your momentary lapse of judgment, your mess, your scandal can become something that becomes so big and you know how the, the mechanism of public shame works, right? You've seen this happen before where everybody knows, oh, that's that girl, or oh, that's that kid. Oh, it's heartbreaking to me. So hey, just, this, is, this is for free, but just as an aside, don't be a part of that problem. Don't be a part of that problem. Don't get into the Insta-shaming. Don't get into the Twitter bashing. Don't get into the what are they, there's secret Insta and there's Finsta and there's this other underground thing and you got like all these, you guys have accounts that you hide from your other accounts, you guys have like public accounts so your parents can see it because they demand to see, you got like a fake one over here so you can do nasty, awful, evil things on it. Just don't do that. I, 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 you, you are perpetuating a culture of shame. and It's bullying and it's awful. This is how Mary grew up. Mary grew up with a very public scandal. And it wasn't even because she made a mistake. It's because she made the most heroic choice any little girl has ever made in the history of the world. She stepped toward scandal so the world could be changed. She stepped toward, it, it came at great personal cost for Mary to say yes to the plan of God. And she did it. Be unto me as you have said. Let's go. She's a, she's a hero. She's one of the bravest people in, in the entire biblical narrative. She's remarkable. And here she is as a mother. And I want you to experience with me what's happening in her eyes. 
Here she is as a mother who has endured this whole story, who sees the tension of hope invading and brokenness still abounding. She still, she knows that her baby boy is gonna grow up and be the hope of the world. She doesn't know how that's supposed to look. She doesn't know what's going on. She knows though that something remarkable has happened in the person of Jesus. And she's waiting for extraordinary to happen. And then she goes to another wedding And she sees in the Galilean countryside this young woman, and she's about to be scandalized. And Mary sees so much of herself in her story. She sees so much of herself in this young bride. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh. Nope. No one. I am not going to stand here and watch that little girl get embarrassed. No scandal for her. That's not happening. The world is different. Hope has come. The Lord is here. And the world has changed. In Mary's worldview, this doesn't happen anymore because heaven has come to earth. This is how beautiful, this is how hopeful, this is how kingdom she believes and how kingdom she thinks. She says, I refuse to live in a world where this happens. And it might seem mundane to you and it might seem ordinary to you, but Mary's like, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't happening. And I love what she does. I know Mary is not an Italian mother, but I have an Italian mother. And so I imagine her as an Italian mother here. Anyone have an Italian mother? You know what I'm talking about with the Italian mother thing? Does anybody know an Italian mother? Okay, there's a lot of bark, very little bite, okay? They're, they tell you their mind, they know what's going on, and you can do no wrong, and their children are heroes. This is, this is what this is, okay, this is what happens. Listen, Mary goes up to Jesus, she walks up to the table, this is what she says. <clears throat> they always do that first. <clears throat> They have no more wine. That's it. There's not a question in that. She's assuming Jesus knows what she means and what she needs. She's a statement of reality. She's just saying to Jesus. Now, to be real clear, when she says they have no more wine, what she means here is Jesus fix it. This is a problem. I know about you. I know what you can do. Get this taken care of and do it now. This isn't a request. This is a command from a mother to a son. Now, I know we know Jesus. He's God in the flesh. I think he knows that at this point in his life. I'm not sure she knows that yet. I I mean, I, I, I get it, you know, but I still wonder, Jesus said, I only do what the Father commands. I only do what the Holy Spirit does through me, all these things. I still wonder if Jesus in his humanity had the power to resist a mother's command in this way. Jesus, they have no more wine. And listen to what he says. This is why I think she's Italian. Woman, why do you, this isn't my business. I'm just, I'm at the wedding with my disciples. They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? And if you have the, the old NIV, they used to try and soften this. In the Greek, there's no, this isn't a soft thing. It's just woman, okay? And the NIV thought it sounded kind of offensive for Jesus to call his mother woman. So they used to put dear woman in front of it. That's 100% an addition. I mean, it's not there. I don't know that it's rude to just be like, hey, lady, but it's, 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 he, he just says, woman, 
Why do you involve me? And so he says, my hour has not yet come. We're living in this tension between the hope that's invading and the brokenness that's there, between the beauty that is coming, heaven coming to earth, and the, and the brokenness that is the human story. He says, I'm stuck in the middle of these two things, and I'm not sure this is the time yet. And I love what Mary does here. Mary completely and entirely ignores him. I mean, she, she, just, she just doesn't even acknowledge that he said anything. She's like, Jesus, they have no wine. And he's like, Mom, come on. And then he just, she, she ignores him. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Okay, now listen, this is remembered forever as the first miracle of Jesus. I give Mary all the credit. This is the first miracle of Mary. I mean, she's, she's the boss. She's in charge. She knows what's going on. So she says, nearby... <laughs> Do whatever he says. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each um, one held between 20 and 30 gallons. And Jesus says to the servants, these ordinary, they're like wash basins. These are not, there's nothing remarkable about them. They're just, these, we have a big party. There's a lot of people here. We have to wash our hands somewhere. And he says, see those six stone jars? Yeah. Fill them to the brim. With what? Water. Just ordinary water. Just, just fill them with water. So they did. They filled each one to the brim. Now there's these huge you know, jars. Uh, there's gallons and gallons of, 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 of water. And then he says this. Draw some of that water and take it to the master of the banquet. And he's this guy. He's like the MC. He's the master of ceremonies. He's the guy keeping the order of the feast going. He knows what's going on. And they ladle some out. And they just, they've ladled out now dirty water from a wash basin. And they put it in a cup. And they take it up to the master of the banquet. And everybody is still puzzled right now. Like, what is about to happen? Why are we giving dishwater to the master of the banquet? And the master of the banquet takes it. And he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And I love that little detail. There's a secret. And we are all going to now have the secret revealed by the master of ceremonies. This is not a public thing. This isn't like something where the whole wedding knows like, what's going on. It isn't like Jesus stands up and says, I, the hope of the world, am here. With my powers of magic, I will turn that water into wine. Let the party continue. And everybody's like, yeah, you know. Jesus is quiet. He sits down. Mary sits down with utter satisfaction on her face. She sits down like a conquering queen. She sits down knowing she just spared embarrassment from this young woman. She knows exactly what she did and why she did it. And the master of the banquet takes a sip. And he says this. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and saves the cheaper wine until after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
Guys, this might seem so trivial to you. It might seem so mundane. It might seem like with people starving and people dying and injustice rampant throughout the ancient world, this is kind of a lame place for him to do his first miracle. Like, couldn't he find like, like, like a worthy person who is like deathly ill or something like that and like do a miracle there? Isn't there something better? Like, couldn't he snap his fingers and like cause world hunger? Like if he has the power to bend the laws of physics and turn water into wine on a molecular level, couldn't he like alter the human genome and and get rid of cancer or something more uh, appropriate? See, he did this to tell us who he is. He did this to reveal something about his character, about his nature. He did this because he wants us to know that even these mundane little details of our lives, even these moments, that the embarrassment of a bride on her wedding day matters to Jesus. Sometimes we think in terms of God that he has a limited capacity for love, or if he helps me, he has to hurt someone else, or if he does this miracle, he has to do something else. I was talking to my 10-year-old daughter, and she was asking questions about prayer. She said to me, Dad, what if I'm praying for a snow day, and someone else is praying not to have a snow day, how does God answer that prayer? It's a very, that's, this, is, this is a deep theological question if you're 10. You know what I'm talking about? Think about this for a second. And, and this is what I told her. I said, he, God ignores the prayers of both and he only answers my prayers because I'm his favorite. <laughs> and she didn't like that answer. She didn't believe me. And we argued about who actually was God's favorite and she thinks it's her and I think it's me. And you know what? Here's the deal. We're both right. See, this is, this is, that's like, that is a little bit like asking me which of my children I love the most. You're expecting me to accept your framework where love is a limited resource. And if I give love, let's say I have like, a, you know, this much love and I give this to, you know, so like imagine this scenario. I give my heart, my soul, my everything to my wife. She has all of my love. And then my little baby is born, Arabella, my, my oldest. And I welcome her into the world and I say, oh no. I'm in love with her. What do I do? Well, I take the love that I have for Jamie and I cut it in half and I give half to Arabella and I give half to Jamie. And I just love her half as much as I did before. Right? That's how, that's how it works. It's a limited resource. It's like a, the, and then when my second child is born, a page, now I have, oh, shoot, well, I gave half my love to Jamie and half my love to Arabella. What do I do? And I thought Paige I liked better than um, Bella. So I said, okay, I'm going to take half of Jamie's love and half of Bella's love, and I'll leave them each with 25%, and I'll give 50% to Paige. And then my son was born. Oh, my son. Dietrich Valor Ulrich. Isn't that the toughest name you've ever heard? And I was like, forget it. I just wiped the slate clean. No girls don't matter anymore. I'm just going to love him. Guys, this is ludicrous. Of course, it's not how it works, right? What happened is this. I loved Jamie in this complete and perfect way. And then she became the mother of my daughter. And I all of a sudden as I began to love my baby, my love for her increased exponentially. I love her more. I, I, I didn't think I could love her anymore. And then as each child was added to our family, I learned to love her in new dimensions. Because here's the truth. Love is an infinite resource. This is not limited. It's not like that, okay, well, if God answers this prayer about the mundane details of my life, it means he's ignoring this national crisis in Nicaragua. That's not how it works. God doesn't have like attention deficit disorder. It's not like he can be like, oh, I gotta, 
But there's more important things over here than you and your relationship drama. This is what's so cool about God. He is infinite. He can manage the destinies of universes. He knows exactly what's happening on a grand scale, and yet he cares about the limited number of hairs on my bald head. He cares about the everyday, individual, seemingly insignificant details of your lives because you're his because he loves you, because your story matters, even those moments that you're not even sure that matter that much to you. This is so important to understand. I got two thoughts. We're going to move pretty quickly and wrap this up. One, Jesus starts with the ordinary and brings out the extraordinary. He acted here because he cares, because this mundane individual little detail, this is how thoroughly Jesus has entered the mess of the human story. He gets down into the muck. He gets down into the mud. He gets into the level where he looks at a bride and groom just starting out, and he says, it matters to me that these people are not bound up in scandal from the start. I'm going to do something remarkable. I'm going to take the ordinary, and I'm going to bring out the extraordinary. I'm going to do something great here. This is so beautiful if you can get this. Jesus, because he's prompted by his mother, he moves out of compassion. He moves out of a heart of mercy in sympathy and kindness and understanding. He extends his power to save this humble Galilean family from embarrassment. Man, God matters. The ordinary details of your life matter to God, and God matters to every single one of those. Listen to me. God matters to every single moment, and every single moment matters to God. All of them. All of them. We get into all kinds of trouble because we carve out our lives into these neat little compartments and we have our spiritual life and we have our work life and we have our school life and we think that somehow what I do over here doesn't affect what I do over there and it's like I can be this person at church and that person at school and this person, you know, while I'm online playing whatever you guys play anymore. What is it? What's the one you guys are playing right now? Fortnite. Fortnite. Okay, that's good. Sorry. I know because I see all these crazy dances and I, I, that is what I think that Fortnite has contributed to the cultural consciousness is all these dances. Um, anyway, you know, but that, like you can be a total tool on Fortnite chat and then you're going to just praise Jesus all day because we have these compartments. But here's the truth. It's just your life. Even in the ordinary, you're waiting for the extraordinary because God wants to meet you in all those moments. Number two, and this is the biggest lesson from this story is that Jesus can, he will. He did it yesterday, he's doing it right now, and he'll be waiting for you to do it tomorrow. He takes our lack, and he replaces it with his abundance. Um, my heart goes out to the woman in this story, to the, to, the, to the man in this story. Sometimes you just run out of wine. Can we be honest for a second? Sometimes your best is just not enough. You come to that point where the moment is too big, the problem is too great. Sometimes we struggle, I think, with lack. It's like, but I, I gave it everything I had and it just wasn't enough. Sometimes you end up in a situation where you're not even sure you can continue. Sometimes you wonder, can I make it through this? My wife and I have endured over the last year a, a, a humongous tragedy. I, I hinted at it last night. Um, our, we bought a house. I'm gonna tell you like a, two-hour story in five seconds. 
We bought a house. We didn't know we bought it from a mad chemist who was doing chemical experiments in the basement. We didn't know that. And he had spilled chemicals in the basement that poisoned our whole family. And it killed our dog, and it almost killed us. And everybody got sick. And our, our, the most vulnerable of us was our little boy, Dietrich. And he almost died. I mean, he really, really almost died. It was about a day away from dying, and it was this whole big thing. And like, so it was like, we were doing good. We're following Jesus. Everything's going great. Then all of a sudden, it's like, you're homeless. You're dying. You've been poisoned. And by the way, all your possessions are lost. We were like, what? And then I, you know, I had this great conversation with an insurance company where I'm like, hey, guys, remember all that money I gave you all the time so you can cover me? Like, you know, you're there for me because that's what your commercials say. Um, I'm like, well, I need you now. And they were like, you have no coverage for this. Nobody does. And I was like, what? Like, it's a chemical spill, man. You're not, good luck. Live your best life now. Make it. I'm like, what? I don't even know what to say. My wife and I are dealing with this. Mercury was the chemical. It's a neurotoxin, so it made us all crazy on top of all that. We just thought we were having a really emotional time. We didn't know like we were actually certifiably insane, like it was making us real crazy. And they, you know, they're asking us these questions, and the doctors are like, so are you experiencing any outbursts of anger? And I'm like, how am I supposed to know if that's because my kids are poisoned and I'm homeless <laughs> or if it's because of this thing rotting my brain? I don't. Of course I feel crazy. But you don't. I was crazy to start with, okay? Then someone poisoned me and now I'm really crazy. And he was like, settle, sir, settle down. <laughs> Sit back down. And I, that's the worst. Don't tell me to settle down when I'm getting fired up because then I just want to punch you so bad. <laughs> you know. Sometimes... You don't even know where to go. Sometimes your best is not enough. Sometimes you just run out of wine. You don't have the resources. You just don't. When that happens, this is, this is what I need you to hear. You better hope you invited Jesus to the party. You're going to come to a point in your life, and you'll come to this. It won't be like this one time, and you'll be like, hey, I remember when that preacher told me to do this that one time. It'll be like Thursdays. Okay, it'll be on the regular. You're gonna run out of resources. Your best will not be enough. This is the Christian story. The Christian story is your best is not enough. But it's okay. Because it doesn't matter what you bring to the equation, it matters what he brings to the equation. It doesn't matter how much effort, how much talent, how much problem-solving skill, how much you can muster, how much you can bring to this equation. Because this is, this is crazy. Your life is not your project. Your story is not in your hands if you do this right. You surrender your story to him, and all of a sudden, these things become God's problem. And they become a place where he can do some amazing work and he can turn your mess into a miracle and he can work in redemptive and beautiful and powerful ways. I cannot even begin to, to tell you the ways that God showed up in the midst of our horror story and we, we were just marveling. Here's, here's where we are on the other side of this thing, okay? We're still in a court battle and it's going to take forever. I'll probably be... I'll probably be in depositions in court till we die. I don't even know. There's all kinds of crazy things happening, and I'm so tired of all this. And only God can do this. He rescued us in such a powerful way. All our kids are healthy. Everything's going good. I mean, it got to the point where somewhere around $80,000 of un, 
expenses we had no, no resources for is kind of what we ended up with at the end of the day. We were like, okay, like, that's not like at that point, it's almost like monopoly money. It's like, it stops mattering. You know, like when, when you, when you have no money and you're negative 80,000, no one, I, I can't even get a loan. I mean, I'm just, I went to a bank and this is what I did. I went to a bank and I said, Hey, I have this big problem. I'm homeless the house that secures my mortgage is now worth like negative $60,000 because I have to remediate a mercury spill inside of it. And they were like, what do you have to secure a loan? And I was like, my good name. That's literally what I told them. And they were like, huh, no. <laughs> I'm like, please. And she said, no, we, just, we, we can't justify loaning you that kind of money. And this is what I did. I said, pretty please. I'm not, I'm not even lying. And she said, okay. And I was like, that worked? I'm like, God, really? You know, and then, um, I, like, we got so, we got so used to this. I mean, we got so used to being broke and then being handed thousands of dollars in bills. I mean, it was like a year of just, I don't know how this is going to work. We're doing it. We're, we're still doing it right now. We, but this is, this is the dance we're in. We are so used to God's provision. Right now, she just asked me, hey, we got this medical bill from this one thing. There's everything going on. And I'm like, oh, gosh, the, the neuropsychology appointments and all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, I don't know how we're going to pay that. And, um, <laughs> but I know it will all be paid. This, this is the kind of thing that happened to us because our lack is his abundance. And I know this is about money. It's not always about money. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everything here, just your life, your resources, everything. So here's, here's, here's a story. One story I'll tell you. We're out of money again. This has probably happened 15 times. We're out of money again. And I have to pay a certified industrial hygienist to come and do air sampling to make sure our, re, our remediated home is safe for humans to occupy again because I have a health code violation from the health department. I have to fix this. My house is now an environmental hazard for the world. It's my problem. I didn't spill anything. I'm a pastor, not a chemist, but whatever. Um, and I have to pay. And she says to me, okay, uh, I said, how much is this? And she says, well, I need $3,000. I need it at the time of service. And I was like, oh. And I, I'm like, okay, I'll have that. And she looked at me and she said, you're lying. And I said, yes. She said, okay. <laughs> she did the work. And then I, I, I go back to work and I'm like, oh God, I don't know how you're going to do this. I, this is like crazy. I called Jamie. We don't have any money, right? Nope, still don't have any money. I'm like, okay, this will be good. I'm not sure what's happening. And I get to my desk and somebody walks into the office about an hour later and hands me an envelope. I've heard stories like this before and I've never had it happen to me. And he handed me an envelope and I knew what was in the envelope without, before I asked, but I just said, what's in that envelope? And he said, $3,000. And I said, where, is that, where did that come from? Because the guy who handed it to me, it certainly didn't come from him, okay? He's like a homeless hipster, and he eats ramen every day, and there's no, okay, there's no way he had it, all right? And he said, Jesus knows, and I get to know, and that's enough. And I said, you tell whoever it is, I didn't tell anybody except for my wife, that is the exact amount I need tonight. God shows up. God shows up. His abundance replaces our lack, and he'll do this over and over and over again. My favorite detail is that there's like 180 gallons of wine 
left over on the last day of the banquet. No party in the world could ever consume that much. I mean, this, this is an absurd amount. It's, it's like, like where, where Jesus could have been like, hey, take one of those barrels and fill it halfway up. He's like, no, take six jars, fill them to the brim, and watch me do my thing. One of the themes in John's gospel is leftovers. It's like when, when Jesus is done, it's more than enough. It's abundant. It's, ex, it's excessive. It's like out of control. And I know Marie Kondo told you you don't need excessive. And I know you're trying to work out with your closet and your life and thank things for their service and release them to the world and say goodbye to all your stuff. But uh, in truth, what you, you're focused on the wrong thing. It's not abundant possessions or excessive stuff. It's excessive joy, excessive life, excessive peace, abundance of the good stuff that, that, that Jesus has invited us into this. He has invited us into a story where his abundance can displace our lack if we just get him to the party. Let's pray. Jesus, you take our hurt, our lack, those times where we just don't have enough. Our best is just not enough. I pray right now for students experiencing moments that feel too heavy, pain that feels too great. I pray for, I pray for students right now that, that wonder how they're going to stretch the limited resources they have over the circumstances around them, and they feel like this problem is too big, this pain is too great, the sadness is too deep. Remind them that you're with them. Remind them that the overflowing abundance of the king of the universe is theirs, that you see their problems even when they're small and ordinary, even when they seem mundane, that you're present in the midst of it. Remind them who you are, Lord Jesus, that you are not this cosmic rule giver throwing lightning bolts on the people who transgress your arbitrary rules, but you are the one who shows up at a banquet to keep the party going, taking ordinary water and turning it into extraordinary wine, that you're reveling in the feast, that you're life abundant. Help us to trust that about you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.